Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to hear from Dan Albrecht of the Black Keys on his new solo album, Waiting on a Song and the Future of His Band. And then we're going to dig into the life and legend of the great Greg Allman. Dan's new album is a real departure made with some great Nashville session guys. It has a, a bright open feel that's really like nothing else in his whole catalog. It's almost his Nashville skyline. And I think we'll start by hearing the title track, which he actually co-wrote with John Prine, and then we'll get right into my conversation with Dan Auerbach. I've been thinking, I've been humming, I've been picking and I've been strumming. So obviously you co-wrote the title track with Prine. What was that process like? Who brought what? How did it come together? Well, that particular, we, we've written a few songs together now, but that was the one that made the record. And um, that one in particular, he came with the first couplet and um, just started strumming the guitar. And, and we worked away at it. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, you know, that one, that one happened pretty quickly. And it was sort of like an instant sing-along for all of us. And uh, yeah, and that's sort of part of that magic that you're trying to capture and you know, you don't know if you're going to get it that day, but sometimes it happens, you know, and that, that was definitely a good, that was a good moment. He came in with a couple of lines and you chime in with the next one. It just kind of popped in. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He, he came in with, I've been thinking, I've been humming, I've been picking, I've been strumming, waiting on a song. And then he said, uh, uh, I've been hitching, I've been thumbing. And then I just finished it. I said, I can, I can almost hear one coming. And yeah, like, 20 minutes later, we, we had the song finished and we were just kind of singing it over and over again. Yeah, it sort of feels like it's always been there, which is always a pretty good sign. I know, yeah. I know, I'm telling you. It was, yeah, that was the feeling. Like we just were all singing it. We knew it already. Like by the time the first chorus came around, you knew the song already. Dan, you're pretty new to co-writing, right? I mean, that yeah. like, that's a very, it's almost, it must be in the water in Nashville. Like it's, it's a co-writing town. The thing is I I grew up playing all these songs that were all co-written, like with my family, all of those songs that I sang were like co-writes. And then I joined, I started a rock and roll band and never co-wrote ever. Just, it was like we wrote, Pat and I wrote in the studio together and it, and it, you know, we kind of used the studio as a tool to write with and, uh, well, I guess Pat was your co-writer, sort of. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. But it wasn't like we just said it was nothing like just sitting down with an acoustic guitar or sitting down with a piano mm. and writing chords and melodies. It was not like that at all. So this is this is more the sort of classic, traditional, the thing that Nashville is so known for. You know, the songwriting tradition. And um, I'd never, I'd never tried it before. I'd never gotten into a room with someone and put just a couple of acoustic guitars and tried to write songs. So it was it was new for me, but um, I I loved it right away, and I and started doing it all the time. What does it bring that your other process didn't bring? Well, I mean, I think it's really nice every day. You know, you're writing with a different person, and all of these people they have their own their own thing. You know, their own magic thing that they do that they're great at. So I mean, I think what what you're trying to do is you know trying to bring the best out of each other you know and if you get lucky that's what that's what happens we talked about john prine obviously it was you know pretty much unless you have like dylan as your co-writer that's about <laughs> as good as you're going to do but tell me about some of the other people you wrote with on this record i wrote um a bunch of the songs with uh, pat mclaughlin and 
and David Ferguson and um and those two guys we, you know we spent all summer together writing Fergie hooked me up with all the with a bunch of these writers but uh but we we would write almost every day and uh um the last song on the record called Show Me I wrote that with Bobby Wood and uh he writes on the piano he writes on the Wurlitzer um which is nice it's the first time I've ever written on with a Wurlitzer and um there's a line in there that says uh the guy the character is 20 miles out of Tupelo and mm. that's that's where Bobby grew up it was 20 miles outside of Tupelo let's hear show me for a minute there's nothing you can say that I haven't heard cause walking still speaks you pump these guys for uh, like Elvis stories did you ever, ever tempted <laughs> um Bobby always said that Elvis told him never be a name dropper <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, that's a that's a faucet that never gets turned off. I mean, they just always tell stories. I mean, that's that's what it is, you know. And yeah, they've got amazing stories. I mean, Dwayne told me this crazy story about Elvis. He was hanging out with Elvis just in the hotel room, just the two of them in in Vegas and Elvis asked him if he knew of any way that he could get away from his manager. <laughs> he asked Dwayne that. <laughs> Wow. It's heavy, yeah. This is Dwayne Eddy, by the way. Yeah, Dwayne Eddy, yeah. Who is a monster, badass, legendary guitar player who plays on, I think, two tracks on on, on your album. Maybe even more. I mean, he was just there all summer. He was just another one of the crew. How did you get to know him? Uh, I met him five years ago with Fergie. We went out to lunch, and um, we hit it off, but... We we really hit it off when he came to the studio because he's a he's a freak for the studio just like me. I mean, you know, the more you think about it, I mean, that's how he origin that's how he created his guitar sound was being in the studio with Lee Hazelwood, experimenting, you know, with these giant water tanks, you know. Um, what does he show up with? Does he have a guitar and amp that he always? Likes to, yeah, what's, always. So what does he have? Like he's got his his own signature Gretsch. Yeah, and his own signature baritone. Wow. And he brings his Music Man Fender amp with the big 15-inch JBL. That's the secret. And, he, and, a, and a tremolo pedal. And it just sounds like Dwayne. He starts playing, and it's just him. Mm. It couldn't be anybody but him, you know, which is wild. Because Mark Knopfler always also plays on the record. And he starts playing, and it could only be him. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's so interesting to when you get somebody on an instrument that so many millions of people play that, you know, you can make it sound so much your own. That's just so wild. One of the tracks Dwayne plays on, I believe, is Living in Sin, right? So let's oh, hear yeah. a little bit of that, yeah. Last night, you seemed to deal with it all right. Girl, you know that I meant well. I promise you that Definitely one of my favorite songs on the record. Tell me about just, like, writing and recording that one. That was just awesome. It sounded just like that in the headphones when we got it, really. I mean, it did. It felt like that. You know, we're just so locked in. There's no edits on that or anything. It just, even the harmonies were were live with Pat. So Pat and I wrote that together at my house. Dwayne played the solo. Just this righteous, ripping, simple solo, you know? Because he plays another solo on another song. And it's this beautiful, flowing, like, West Coast melody, you know? But on that song, that's what, you know, all these guys are so great at. They know what to, you know, they they listen to the song and the song tells them what to play. Do you know what I mean? 
When you have Dwayne Eddy <laughs> about to record a solo for one of your songs on your solo album, do you tell him what to do? Do you give him any? No, I didn't. I don't. I don't tell Dwayne. He's really good at coming up with parts. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not afraid to tell people if I have an idea. But you know, the great thing about most all these guys is that I don't have to say anything because their ideas are better than mine. <laughs> do you get gunshot at all playing guitar in front of like a Dwayne Eddy? No, no, no. Cause we, we, you know, we do our own thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't get insecure about it, but I mean, I'm, I just do whatever the song needs. You know, I'll play, I played mostly acoustic rhythm guitar, you know, got really big into playing rhythm guitar, locking in with the drums. Um, you know, just being a little bit more concerned with the fabric of the song, less about any one particular strand, you know? So you wake up in the morning like a regular person and you're in the studio at 9 a.m. So is it like a 9 to 5 thing? How does it work for you? Well, yeah, I get to the studio like 9 and and uh, work all day long. Go home for dinner, cook dinner. Uh, and then maybe if I need to do some overdubs, I'm going to go back until a little bit later. Or I can be done. But yeah, I, I like to work all day long. I, I like to start early. Was that always the case, like the early Black Keys days, or were, that, were you ever like a late night recording? No, 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 man. No. I'm always been a morning person, but I always, I always waited till noon to because Pat likes to sleep in. So, <laughs> but I don't. We, I'd always have to wake him up. Do you still have trouble sleeping? I remember that was a, a big thing for you. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I, I'll sleep six hours, then I'm done. I don't sleep any more than that. You yeah. Know? So, if I go to bed at nine p.m., yeah, I'm up in the middle of the night mm. after six hours. So how would you sum up this time of your career? Because it seems like a, a real time of sort of freedom and exploration and evolution that's really different from maybe any other time. I, but I, I'm curious how I, you see I it. I feel, yeah, I, I, it's it's all of that. But it also is me sort of, I feel like it's the most me that I've ever been, really. You know, I mean, when I did my first solo record, it was similar. I just didn't have these guys. You know, I mean, I was doing a very similar thing, like, if I'd have had all these guys, I could have played those songs, you know? Songs like Trouble Weighs a Ton. and Yeah. You know what I mean? Those are country songs, sort of, you know? Well, it's funny. I was just, I went back and, and listened again to the first solo record. And let's hear Trouble Weighs a Ton. What's wrong, dear brother? Have you lost your faith? Don't the you thing is, mood-wise, <laughs> it's very different. Oh, yeah, sure. That's So that's kind of what, one of the many things that made me think like, wow, is, is Dan feels like he's in a different place emotionally, especially at that point. You know, I told you I recorded like 200 songs. They're not like all up-tempo and happy. I you see. know, these are the 10 that worked best together as a record, I thought. You know, I had to like strip myself away and I just didn't want to be that cliche dude who like make, puts a double album out. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Just because I have all the songs. Were you tempted? Were you tempted a little no. bit? No. Okay. Mm -mm, not at all. I didn't want to do that because... I wanted the songs to like speak the best that they could. You know, there are a couple songs I knew I wanted to release, like Waiting on a Song, because I liked how it felt, and uh, a song like Living in Sin, because I liked that. So then when I start to add to those two songs, I want them to all kind of feel similar. So that just, you know, by picking those as the starting point, it kind of like shaped the rest of the record, how it, how it ended up feeling. But I've got a bunch of songs that are like dark and moody and stormy with Dwayne playing big low guitar on you know 
Wow. Uh, so but, then I would be asking you, like, Dan, what's wrong? Is what exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I do love that people get this feeling from the whole record as a whole because I think that's people telling me that I did it right. You yeah, know what I mean? Exactly. The record has this feeling to it spirit one of the reactions i had to the record which is that there's some george harrison occasionally in some moments but i don't i don't think that was something you were thinking at all (laughs) no i i don't i don't i love george harrison but i don't i've never really listened to any of his solo records uh you know other than hearing some of the singles on radio but um i don't know i honestly i i didn't listen anything i didn't read anything i didn't (laughs) listen anything i didn't go see any movies all i did was work on music Mm. And I wasn't really thinking about anything other than just trying to make new stuff. I didn't want to do any covers. We didn't cover any old songs. You know, we just were working on new songs every day. And I, I completely shut off. I didn't, wasn't on the internet at all. It was really freeing, just the whole experience. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. We're here with the great Dan Auerbach. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. How conscious were you of avoiding sort of your old Not at approaches? All. Yeah. I didn't think about anything. I just went in and did it. That's it. And it was it was day to day and we were writing and recording and having picking parties and you know, I'm like singing bluegrass songs with Del McCurry and you know, it was the the feeling of of all that music and all the, the community. Do you know what I mean? I think that that's sort of what I wanted to get across on the record. And, sure, and the thing yeah. that, that I was starting to feel was it was the, the studio just kind of like came to life and it just became a place where everyone was hanging out. And the music got stronger, I think, because of it. Yeah, you're sort of having these these picking parties like at home, right? Mm-hmm. Which are very much, as we said, kind of like the ones that like family reunions as a kid. Exactly. So, like with my uncles there. I'll bring my, my uncles oh, come in <laughs> and they sing. And, uh, you know, the McCurrials will be there. So it'll be like two generations of my family, three generations of the McCurries, you know, singing all these songs, you know, bluegrass, mostly bluegrass songs. But what kind of songs? Like, tell me which, like, you know, well, because Dell is, he's in the, uh, um, I, I grew up in the Stanley Brothers, you know, but I didn't know that there was like a, a line drawn in the sand, like between there's Stanley Brothers people. And there's Bill Monroe people. Interesting. Yeah. Like, so when I first got together with Dwayne, I was like, let's, you know, any uh, Stanley Brothers songs? And he's like, no, I don't know. You know, but he knows every single Bill Monroe song ever written, even besides, you know, but, um, and how much of that, how well do you know all that stuff? Like, uh, I know some of them, 
Yeah. You know, but I was, I was more into, I know more of the Stanley Brothers stuff. Mm. Yeah. But we'll sing like, um, Can't You Hear Me Calling? Dell and I sing that one together all the time. And uh, Columbus Stockade Blues. And, hmm. Let's hear an old version of uh, Columbus Stockade Blues just to get a, a feel for it. So I'd imagine that that stuff, playing that stuff for fun and then going in the morning and recording new music, it must kind of get in your Well, the thing space. is, we started, at the picking parties, we just started playing, like, waiting on a song. Wow. You know? And with all the McCurries playing along and singing, it's like, just sort of becoming a, another song that we sing in the, in the round, sort of, you know? So it really uh, was all part of the same thing. How important is it to you to be able to evolve? Because already five years ago, you'd already gone through more evolution than most artists get a chance to nowadays. Um, When you listen to the big come up and and go to 2010, 2011, it was a huge evolution. And now it feels like another leap. So how important is it to you to be able to kind of just keep moving forward and not be stuck in one thing? I think it's really important. Yeah. I mean... It's uh, it's it's hard to do because you know, you make money touring. That's how you make a living in the music business, unless you're writing top forty hits, which I don't do that. You know, so it's a hard way to live. You know, being on the being on the road all the time, and it's not a creative way to live for me. You know, I mean, it's hard for me to make music when I'm on the road. But I think the thing that I've found now is that I don't even I don't want to be thinking about any of that. I just don't. I don't want to intellectualize this thing that I do. You know, because it's not. That's not what it's for. You know, I was really fortunate. I was raised with music and it's a part of my life. And man, there's a picture on the back of the record of all the guys who play on it. And it's got like Prine and it's got, you know, Kenny Malone and Bobby Wood and Gene Chrisman and Dwayne and Kenny Vaughn and all these incredible musicians. And, you know, pretty much every single one of them, they all grew up on playing music with their family, you know? So it's just, I don't know. I I don't know. It's almost like, I feel like I'm really just making music and not even thinking about the music business at all, you know? What do you like about, there's a bunch of like older guys, not exclusively, but a lot of older dudes that you've been hanging around with and playing with. You obviously get something out of that. What is it? They're incredible musicians. That's it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hang out with them if they weren't great at what they did. Uh, you know, I mean, I love that they tell great stories and stuff, but that's not why I hang out with them. You know, I hang out with them because they're the best, like the best drummers, the best keyboard players. And, and, you know, you listen to a song like, uh, shine on me, which is on the radio now. That's doing really well. And like the drummer's 80 years old. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's not, it has nothing to do with their age. There's a fire, there's a spirit that these guys have and it's special. And I'm just trying to be around as much as I can. Do you want to be doing this in, you know, 20 years, 30 years? Do you think about that? But do you want do you want to be like the old dude? I mean that but that's the thing is that it's who I am. Yeah. I mean it is me. Yeah. I will be doing. It. I mean that's cuz that's who I that's what I do. You know, it's what I've always done. It's easier to imagine doing this current thing that you do hanging in the studio cranking out songs than like yeah, sure. touring and playing Black Keys songs necessarily in well, 30 years, but but who knows. I mean, you know, Pat and I have always sort of been like reluctant rock stars you know what i mean we don't like the idea of rock we I, we just 
just that word makes me want to cringe. You know what I mean? I, I hate, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, doesn't usually turn out good for rock guys. Do you know what I mean? And I don't know, man, I've never really felt like one to begin with. So I don't know. I like what Pat and I do. I, I wouldn't be worried about doing what we do because it's always been pretty natural too. You know, I, uh, I love a little theater, but like, that's not Pat and I, you know what I mean? Mm. We're not going to be swinging samurai swords on stage, you know, <laughs> with like beams of light shooting everywhere and fireworks, <laughs> you know. I'd like to see one tour like that, though. <laughs> I don't even know if everyone. I could do it. Platform boots. Just with go. a straight face. Yeah, platform boots. What's the kind of current state of your relationship? Are, are you guys in regular contact or you take breaks from each other when you're on a break like this? How does that kind of work? I mean, yeah, we text and stuff, you know, but we don't really hang out that much, but you know, we've seen enough of each other. Yeah. Yeah. Is he anxious to get back to the keys or is it kind of a mutual? He wants, he wants to, but he's, you know, he just says whenever you, whenever you're ready, he's enjoying his time off too. Do you have any sense of when you'll be ready or is that just like not in your head right now? Yeah. It's not really in my head at the moment, but yeah, I mean, I, I just haven't really even had time to think about it, to be honest. It's going to be really interesting, honestly, to have you come back to that stricture and that band after you've gone so, like, impressively wild in, in your directions of, of music. I, I'm, I'm kind of excited and interested to see how that all kind of fits back in, you know? Yeah, I mean... The last time I did a solo record, we came back and we did uh, Brothers together. So, right? I think, yeah. That's correct, yeah. I like that record. <laughs> <laughs> so you're basically, you're putting a lot of pressure for when, it, if and when this happens. That, that But it, it will happen, right? This is, yeah, no, I'm sure. No I'm, I know it's going to happen, but uh, I just don't know when. Couldn't tell you. I love making music with Pat. Yeah, I, I'm not worried about it. It's its own thing. And that's what's so cool about it. It gets to be its own thing. You sort of, you have your own thing now. You have your own studio. You have your own label. It feels like you want to step aside and make your own little base. Do you feel alienated from the state of the, the pop industry? I, I don't really know. I don't think about it too much. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know anything about it, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I know. I know come I, on, you produced a Lana Del Rey record, man. That was. Uh, <laughs> I know, but not because I had pop hits, man. Yeah, no, I know. You know, yeah. and uh, you know her her label was definitely would have been way stoked if she'd have just gone over made a record with Doctor Luke. I'm sure. Do you know what I mean? She had to really fight to 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 be able to record uh, that yeah, stuff. Yeah, we talked with about me. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I've always just made music that I like just because I like it and just because it interests me. I mean, I'm just that's what I'm going to do. I think. It's it's served me in, up until this point, you know. There really aren't a lot of people who who have that freedom, especially in the. I know music it. I don't now. take it for granted, man. I I understand it, but um, I don't know. I definitely feel blessed, really, honestly, man. And what you know, just just being able to like make music with all these guys has just been such a crazy year for me. It's been so eye opening. So what happens to the other like 90 songs or whatever from that that you made? I'm going to just continue to like try to better them. Like try to like see if I can beat them. 
did you write them or actually record them? They're they're like you could play yeah. them for me now, and they're like arranged and like there, there was like strings on them and curled <laughs> them background vocals. Really? And, okay. Yeah, yeah, they're done. Yeah, we the the studio is just going so strong at the moment. I mean, we it's sort of like you know they talk about stacks or Motown. They had their stable of musicians. That's sort of, that's exactly what's going on at my place and. You know, they never move their drums or anything at Motown. Or st- I haven't moved the drums for like two years, you know. Everything's for sort of set up. It's a ton of instruments, but they're they're just kind of in their place now. And we just, we go pretty quickly. I mean, it's the, we move really fast when we're in the studio. So are you like hemorrhaging money? <laughs> paying all this guy? <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely spending a lot of money. I, yeah. I don't, I'm not cutting any corners, but... Um, but like I said, we work efficiently. You know what I mean? Like in a in a normal day, we can cut four or five songs. You know. So basically, what you did with your rock star money <laughs> was funnel it back into this like amazing creative freedom and project that that you're that you're doing. I yeah, and I I turned down lots of money for touring to like stay at home and spend my money. <laughs> Dan, you're, um, hey, Greg, you're crazy, it, Dan. I know. I I definitely, part of me felt feels crazy for doing it because you know my mentality about, you know, it came from the Midwest and, you know, nothing was ever handed to us. So it's hard for, it was always been hard for Pat and I to like turn down a tour because we're like, they want to offer us how much money? Yeah, we got to go do it, you know? So it's always been hard for us. So it, it, it was hard up until even last year to, to like, clean clear my my uh calendar but i'm so glad that i did it you know and i don't know if it'll ever pay for itself but i feel fulfilled in a way that i don't know that i've i've felt before the big come up i think has its like 15th anniversary when you listen to those the earliest black keys stuff what, what does it sound like to you now uh I mean, it's fun. I love listening to it. I love to hear it. You know, it just sounds like enthusiasm and, and I can hear all the stuff that I was listening to. I can, you know, I'm so connected to all that stuff. Cause I, I just, I remember what mics we used and the little amps that we used and the guitars. And I, I remember like, you know, seeing team model Ford and then cutting certain songs and, you know, I'm reminded of all that kind of stuff. And what would the the you who made those early records what, what what would they think of this like your new your new solo record? Oh, I have no idea. Would you have sort of believed that you could have made something like that back? You know what I mean? Because it's such so not many then. steps. Yeah, no, not then. I wouldn't have known even where to begin. We were so clueless. That's <clears throat> that's kind of why we did everything ourselves because we were way too scared to ask anybody for help, and we were in Akron, so it wasn't like there was a huge scene. We. There are only a couple people with like, you know, for real legit studios and they wouldn't let us touch anything, you know? So it's been a, it's taken a long time. It's really hard to to navigate the waters, especially recording, man. It's really hard to be a band and know what to do, where to spend your money, that kind of thing. It took years to figure that stuff out. That was me talking with Dan Auerbach about his new solo album and about the future of the Black Keys. And we're going to take a break and be right back with Mark Benelli to talk about the late Greg Allman. I have with me today in the studio Mark Benelli. Hey, Mark. Hey, Brian. So Mark is a longtime Rolling Stone writer, and he wrote the final Rolling Stone profile of Greg Allman back in 2009. And I wanted to have Mark in and talk a little bit about Greg and, and your experiences with him. I mean, we were talking 
about uh, where he lived. It was like a gated community. He was in kind of a, a lonely place. What, what was your experience of kind of first going in and, and meeting with him? Yeah, I think it got him at a weird time. He'd just broken up with his uh, sixth wife. So one of the very first things he uh, he said to me when I walked into his his house was, uh, yeah, it's been lonely times up here lately. Uh, <laughs> so he, he lived just outside of Savannah in a gated community, as you said. Sort of, you know, not a real... MTV Cribs style crib. It was like a sort of standard, you know, rich guy's suburban house in a, in a lot of ways. Um, I guess the two Cribsier touches were um, there was a framed photograph of him f- feeding ice cream to a tiger. Yeah, I read that in your story and it did raise some questions. Do you know <laughs> what were the circumstances of this, I, you know, this ice cream tiger? A lot encounter. of other stuff was going on, so I didn't get to ask. It, it feels very walk hard, doesn't it? Yeah. I, it doesn't he have a tiger and walk hard? And what, what else was cool there? Was- the other very strange, just funny little detail was a buddy of his came over, just a regular, not a musician, like a fishing buddy, I think, and he brought us some lunch from this like southern right. place um, including Brunswick stew which is their local specialty mm. um, and uh, the guy you know his marriage had just broken up so the guy was asking uh, um, you know how you know how he's doing you know um, things like that and and um, then he suddenly said so did she take the barber chairs and Greg was like no no I got the barber chairs <laughs> and I didn't know what they were talking about and then later he took me on a tour of the house and in his bedroom sure enough there were these two vintage like perfectly restored barber chairs again I'll always regret this I did not ask him what the barber chairs were for <laughs> the significance but, of yeah, the barber chair in yeah. your bedroom but uh, yeah maybe that's what he sat in when they shot his foot to get out of the draft yes is, is could that, be what, so that is one of the most intense getting out of the draft for Vietnam stories I've ever heard in my entire life what were the circumstances what did he do he was drafted and they had a foot shooting party so apparently um, as the legend goes Dwayne his brother painted a target on his left foot um, on the monitor moccasin he was wearing and Greg uh, drank a lot of whiskey and I think took a bunch of speed and then shot himself in the foot and uh, it worked it did work yeah <laughs> so one of the things you you get out in your stories is how haunted he was by the loss of Dwayne and, and also his father they had lost their father in this really southern gothic kind of murder right and he he was already mentally ill he picked up a hitchhiker and the guy just flat out murdered him and then they were left with a single mom right yeah when greg was like two years old so he really didn't didn't know his father at all i guess the father had been in the korean war came back with a pretty bad ptsd <clears throat> was murdered by a hitchhiker as you said and um yeah when i spoke to butch trucks for my story he said that Dwayne had been sort of like a father figure to him in many ways although greg also spoke a lot about how um, Dwayne would, you know, the, just the, the crazy fights they would get into. I mean, he told one story about how he was like, he's like, yeah, my brother hung me once. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, they were like playing some sort of cowboy game. And then like Dwayne ta- taught him how to make a noose and convinced him to tie it around his neck and tie the end to, other end to a tree. And then somehow like got him to forget about the noose and told him there were cookies in the house or something. So he ran and choked himself. And, uh, and he told me he was blue as a goose. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, Dwayne d- died, you know, to basically, you know, it's, it's crazy to think. I mean, the band formed in 69. He was dead in 71 um, in a motorcycle accident in Macon. And then a year later, almost to the date, something like three blocks away from where Dwayne had died, uh, the bass player d- also died in a motorcycle accident. So there was lots of tragedy in this band uh, from a very early um, date. What sense did you get of Greg's kind of relationship to the blues? He felt pretty comfortable with it he didn't feel 
like any appropriation, clearly, he felt like this was a music he could not only sing, but write songs in that form and just kind of embrace the blues. What, what was your sense about that relationship? Yeah, he was definitely a blues fanatic. I mean, in fact, while we, I don't know if this even made it into the story, but while we were talking, he had, uh, and this is going to sound like a plug, but he had on a satellite radio, <laughs> uh, the blues, one of the blues stations in the background, just sort of playing on his television the whole time we were talking. And he would periodically like kind of stop the story and like either to sort of tell me to listen to a song or like to kind of critique a song as not being bluesy enough and they shouldn't be playing it or um, so you know he had a real sort of deep passionate love and, the, and jazz as well he and yeah. his brother both I mean Greg is a <clears throat> keyboardist really loved Jimmy Smith uh, the the jazz organist so it's interesting he, he also seemed so lonely that he was actually looking on like something like classmates.com to find partners for like a trip is that yeah well he told me two separate stories he's the classmates.com story was yeah that was startling to hear you know greg allman saying that he just found this website and was looking up old friends um and he also had had a trip planned to go to Jamaica and he ended up canceling it because he couldn't find anybody to go with him, which was very, yeah, that was, it was sad. I mean, his, his marriage had just broken up. Um, and what he, he came to a realization right about all his marriages finally. Yeah, he was talking about, he started to say something about his ex, his most recent ex-wife and then kind of stopped himself and said, you know, uh, only, only a fool tells half a story, you know, and just basically said it was not right for him to be talking about her when she wasn't there to defend herself. And then he said, he thought, he paused for a second and he said, to tell you the truth, uh, I've had six wives. I'm starting to think it was me. <laughs> <laughs> he had kind of like the, a real ability to like only a fool tells a half a tale. He had like a ton of these kind of like old southernisms in him, right? He's he was very southern, yeah. And, and to your question about the blues, I mean, I think he he sort of, you know, he was he was yeah, he was a deeply southern guy and so so I think some of what maybe sounds to our ears now like sort a sort of appropriation, it's coming out of a genuine place. You know, he was he was, you know, he was like, you know, Jacksonville is um it's Florida, but it's like the part of Florida that's still very like Georgia-ish, I think. Right. What was your sense of his feelings about the band's accomplishments like how, how much pride did he have in kind of the, the Almond Brothers in their place in the world I think he recognized it. I mean when I talked to him I think they were right about I, I don't think they'd played those shows yet they were coming up on their 40th anniversary so they did like something like 15 shows at the Beacon Theater that year and so yeah he was he was very much aware of his of his place in in rock history and I think you know it, you look back at I, you know I personally going to the story it was fun it was funny one for me to do because i wasn't a super fan in any way um, right. i don't know did you, if you grew up listening to them at all but um into you know i think some of it maybe is like a regional classic rock radio differences yeah. i've talked to people like rob sheffield about this like what he would hear in boston versus what i would hear in detroit for some reason in detroit when i was growing up they just did not play the almond brothers so i they did in new york so on yeah. that level anyone who was like sort of a classic rock person definitely but did you become a fan in the course to a certain extent in the course of yeah so i, I mean i mostly agreed to do the story when they came to me because he just seemed like such a great character and i didn't exactly, really know yeah. the music and you know yeah you've probably made the same calculations we write profiles for different reasons sometimes you're a huge fan sometimes it's just like this person is probably going to be interesting in some way so i went back and um yeah i got i really got into the early records i mean oddly my favorite of their records i think which is you know something that real almond fans um would would probably hate me for is, is brothers and sisters the one interesting the non-duane one um of the early run of records and i think i, I th i'm not a big jam band sort of fan so i think i like that they're short concise 
songs. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about his relationship to substances. Uh, by the time you got with him, he was sober, though, smoking weed. And that that's a kind of a typical rock star way of being sober, which yes. is they're sober, but of course they're still smoking weed. Yeah. Like, what, what are yeah. we, animal theory? You know, <laughs> right. it's like... Right. Like, <laughs> George Clinton, I did a profile of him a few years ago. It was the same thing. He was not, never, he was never not smoking weed the whole time. I'm sober, he said, yeah. smoking a joint. Yeah, it's very typical, yeah. yeah. Uh, he'd said, at the t- yeah, I think he'd been sober since 95, or so he told me. Um, you know, when I got him, he had just been diagnosed with hep C so he was he was not super well um but in the early days yeah i mean the stories were crazy they would when they would tour really early on they would have like big jugs of robitussin <laughs> um so yeah they were they had the syrup way before uh, and you know they he told stories about how they got this pure form of psilocybin from some guy they knew in a lab and they would have it for breakfast every morning for like eight weeks straight just to see what would happen. Uh, and then he personally, you know, really struggled with, with, um, with a heroin addiction. He apparently started, started using heroin a lot after Dwayne died. And, um, you know, pretty famously, like when he was married to Cher later in the seventies, um, um, he passed out in a restaurant and and face first into a plate of spaghetti. And there, there were lots of stories like that. Alcohol-wise, he at one point had a booze schedule to try to keep him in, in check, right? Yes, I found that interesting. It was specifically for when they were on tour. So he, I think his schedule was he would do a shot uh, every two hours because if he if he let it go for longer than that, he would start to get the shakes and that would affect his playing. But if he, if he, if he overdid it, then he would be too drunk and slurry. But although he did admit to me that sometimes he did shots between the shots and cheated. <laughs> you know, it's it's not a perfect science. The other thing that you really get across is something that people who haven't maybe followed the rock press over the years and just know the music might not understand is the fact that he was seen as something of a rock and roll villain for many years. You, as you say, not quite Ike Turner, but was seen as, you know, kind of a bad guy. Why was that? Yeah, he was, you know, he had a very prickly reputation. I have to say, I had a very pleasant time with him. Um, he was, you know, he was much older, of course, and just kind of mellow and, you know, just seemed like a very sweet guy to me. But if you, go, you know, if you go back as I did before the piece and read, you know, all of the, the major Rolling Stone stories about him, starting with the famous Cameron Crowe story that that's partly inspired Almost Famous. He's a very prickly character. Um, later on in the 70s, as I said, you know, married to Cher. Um, he apparently pulled a knife on her during their, their honeymoon. Um, their marriage only lasted nine days, I think. Um, there was a big coke bust of, of the band um, that he got wrapped up in, and he apparently flipped on... Um, one of their this roadie and, and basically testified against him and a, the other band members just didn't talk to him for years after that um i was just reading his defense on that which is you know like man the other band members weren't in court they didn't see how they were you know how the prosecutors were holding my deposition against me and threatening me with perjury and just like what would you do man and it's like so i guess there's a defense but yes i, I mean to fans and to the band like he was the dude who like narked on someone and that, yeah. that that was not cool in the 70s one thing i didn't ask him about i think they were like pretty tight with carter weren't they yeah no, i mean they, i know he was definitely in with the capricorn records people we have a story by Michael Gilmore in the next issue of Rolling Stone. It's a great kind of uh, 
life spanning piece as Michael tends to do. And one of the things that comes up is, you know, yeah, they were tight with Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was a big fan. There's an anecdote where uh, Carter was alone with, with Greg Allman and I, I think they're drinking whiskey. So Carter says, you, you know, uh, Greg, I'm going to be the next president of the United States. And, and Greg just couldn't believe it. And then the next thing he says, and I need some money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so then the, the Allman brothers did a bunch of fundraisers. And uh, so, so yeah, no, that that's a weird sort of footnote is the tightness with Jimmy Carter. So what else sort of happened in your time with, with Greg that, that stands out in your mind? I saw, actually saw him twice. I, I met up with him again in New York. I mean, a funny sort of thing about that was he was he was like not doing as well that second time. He thought I was from Motocross Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> he was just, I really had a great time with him. I mean, he... Um, uh, he would tell. He was a hard person to interview. I'm sure you've you've had this this um, experience yourself, Brian, profiling people. He he didn't tell a super linear story, so it was hard to convey in print. Right. Like, there's the a fun there's a fun part of your piece where I think he's trying to tell you something like maybe the first time he smoked pot, and it's it, the first time he smoked pot in New York. Okay. Yeah. And and it just veers off in like possibly seven to eight directions. Yeah. And it, I think what's cool about what you did is is rather than just like ignore that and try to like make it make sense, you actually kind of let it play out. Like here's what it's like inside of the the brain of Greg Allman and it seemed like it was kind of a twisty place let's face it yeah I feel I felt like I had to do it at least once in the piece just to sort of show the readers what it was like but I mean the rest of the quotes were heavily you know <laughs> extracted from from stories like that that was really what it was like being with him at least at that time so did he seem sad I, you know, it, it's hard. I hesitate to just sort of um, psychoanalyze the guy based on, you know, spending an afternoon with him. But yeah, based on... Of course, on, that was your job um, <laughs> with this piece, but yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the fact that he said he was told me he was lonely, uh, me, a reporter, that like one of the first things he said to me, um, the detail about classmates.com. Yeah, I think he was kind of rattling around in this big house by himself and was probably feeling a little bit wistful. What was your sense about his uh, the, the long break they took and then his resumption of the, of the Almond Brothers band? I mean, what, what did it mean to him that they had kind of had this whole second act? I think, you know, that was an interesting time. I mean, I ta- when I talked to Butch Trucks about that, he, um, yeah, he said basically, yeah, we took the 80s off. Um, because of disco. He said. Because he blamed it on disco, as yeah. those guys of a certain age tend to do. <laughs> but, um, but then they, you know, they kind of perfectly um, slid right into the jam band thing. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, they, you know, those Beacon shows were every year. I mean, he, in, even after I saw him, I mean, he, you know, we were talking before before we went on the air. I think he pretty much toured up until the pretty end. Pretty much till I the mean, end, yeah. So he, you know, he sort of lived for it. And when he wasn't touring with the Almond Brothers, he did solo shows. Um, it was it was his life, I think. So I've been talking with uh, Mark Benelli about his uh, great 2009 profile of Greg Allman, who passed away recently. And early in the show, we heard from Dan Auerbach about his new solo album. And this has been our episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week at 1 p.m. on volume. And in the meantime, check us out as a podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe. And we will see you next week.
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.